Welcome to Coach House Talks. So I thought I'd start off uh, in honour of Stan and Mary, really. I thought I'd, I'd, I'd start with a story that Stan gives on a Thursday. Because it kind of fits. And Stan told this story of a, of a vicar addressing the children in his church. Okay, so they were like a kids' meeting, children's meeting, and the vicar was addressing them. And he was trying to tell them about the Bible, and he was telling them about Jesus, and he was telling them about all the different things. And these kids really weren't listening that much. So in the end, he kind of got down there and he said, listen, guys, I've got some news for you. Every child in this village will eventually die. And this lad started laughing. He said, what are you laughing at? Do you not get that every person in this village will eventually die? This is a matter of life and death. And this lad puts his hand up and he goes, that's all right. I'm from the village next door. So why am I telling you this? Well, the reason I'm telling you this is because the prophets who we've been looking at, speaking to God's people, they tell God's truth. But often, we don't want to hear it. We don't want to hear that. It sounds like bad news to us, doesn't it? We want to hear what sounds good to us. We don't want to hear bad stuff. And we ask ourselves, why the prophets get such a bad press? in Scripture? Well, it's because they're telling the truth. And nobody, come on, let's be honest, nobody likes to hear the truth about themselves. You see, we've discovered that the voice of the prophets has been coming louder and faster as they've taken on all of these kings in Judah and Israel and before that when they were together. These people that they've chosen to govern over them rather than God, okay, let's kind of make sure we get this. They've wanted kings to govern over them rather than God. And so the prophets speak to the kings saying, look, you need to behave like this. You need to do this. You need to represent God like this. And time after time, the kings go, no. In fact, what they did was they surrounded themselves with people who they called them their prophets and their advisors. And they would come alongside them and they would whisper into the king's ears nice things. You're doing really well. It's fine. Everything's okay. Don't ignore those prophets that we don't know that are coming into the land and telling us that we need to do this, this, and this. We'll be all right. Just look after yourself and look after us. You see, if prophets, true prophets, speak the truth, then often those that we surround ourselves with do the opposite. They speak lies to us. They don't speak the truth. See, the prophets told uncomfortable truths to the kings. Your behavior is bad. You need to change. You need to get your life lined up with what God says you need to do. And the prophets revealed the sin and the wickedness. But all of this occurred for a particular reason. So as we've been going through our timeline of the Bible, here it is. You'll be glad to know that we're, we've managed to get through most of the Old Testament. Okay, so we're kind of here. And the kingdom has been brought into exile 
and prophets have been speaking loudly. So in a few weeks' time, we'll have covered the entire Old Testament, okay, in, in our big picture overview. And I hope it's been useful for you to kind of have the, the shape to hang things into. So when you have a little bit of understanding of some of the stories that you'll know the detail of, you'll be able to see where it all fits. And the prophets, they are proclaiming and bringing about an expectation of the rescuer that's been promised throughout the entire Old Testament, Jesus. So the prophets are bringing about expectation of Jesus. But the failure of the people, okay, to hear the prophets and respond to the prophets meant that actually they were going to be stripped of everything that they self-relied on. Everything that they thought made them great. Everything that made they think made them stand out. Now, I have to be really honest with you here. When I was in the police, no booze. I don't mean drink. When I was in the police, I became very reliant on money. Okay? I joined the police when there was lots of overtime and various things were happening in the world. So I was on 24-hour pay, basically. And so I got a lot of money. Okay? I was pretty rich for my age. But that money became something that I relied on to buy friends to kind of influence. And when I eventually came out of the police, because the police just wasn't sitting with me, okay? As a Christian, it just wasn't sitting. And that's not to say that Christians can't be policemen. It's just it didn't sit with me. All right, you know me. Can you imagine me kind of telling you off? <laughs> yes. Who said yes? It happens every week. <laughs> well, if you think this is telling you off... Boys, do you think this is being told off? No. <laughs> okay. But when I came out of the police, I spent six months, six months in a job with a Christian where I didn't get paid at all, not a penny. I, paid, I used all of my money that I had as savings and pension to buy into this Christian business, and then for six months... I watched all my money go down the pan, right? Every single penny. And I couldn't tell my parents. My parents were really pleased that I was in the police. I was a bit of a status symbol for them. And they would tell their friends, look, our son is a policeman. Oh, isn't it wonderful? When I came out of the police, my pitch came off the wall. That was the first thing that happened. Oh, he's not in the police anymore. Not that proud of him. The church has, you know, got in his head. And so the very last week that I could survive, because I was paying my mum and dad the, the, the money that I would pay to stay at the house and for upkeep and food and things like that. And then the very last week that I could actually pay out of my bank account before going overdrawn, that's how broke I was. There was nothing left at all. I walked through the church doors and somebody just went, do you fancy working in a warehouse? My, I think it's son-in-law, is. is got a business and he's looking for somebody to work in the warehouse. Do you want a job? Now, they didn't know that I was desperately unhappy. Desperately unhappy to the point that I would go to work in the morning and feel physically sick because I knew there was no way out of this. It was a, I don't know if you've ever felt like that in your lives where you've been somewhere and you can't see anything in front of you. It's just 
this is making me sick. And I hadn't told anybody, and, and, and I got offered this job to work in a warehouse, which I jumped at. I thought, well, anything, get me out of this. And so I started working in this warehouse, which surprisingly wasn't the job I was looking for. I wasn't looking for a job, but that job became the stepping stone to my career in polyurethanes, plastics. Resulting in me looking after for my company that I started in the warehouse. Well, I actually jumped a couple of companies, but I started in a warehouse of this company and I worked the way up through this company until in the end I was looking after the entire southern Europe. So I'd, every week I would get on a plane and fly to Milan or I'd fly to Turkey or I'd fly to, and I'd look after the people there. Uh, it was quite funny because uh, Matthew would often say to Mel, um, where's dad? After a couple of days of not seeing me. And Mel would go, well, he's in Italy. Oh, when did he go there? <laughs> but I'll tell you, one of the best things about working away like that was when I came home. And Jamie, I'm sure you've experienced this. And anyone with young kids has experienced this. You open the door and it's like, Dad! <laughs> it's such an amazing experience. But think about how God thinks about you returning to him. Just while we're having that mental picture. The reason I'm kind of telling you this story is not for you to go, oh, that's terrible, and throw me loads of money. That's, that's not what this is about. It's to show you that God doesn't work to our strategies and plans. Okay? Doesn't, life does not always work out like you want it to work out. It works out like God is going to order it. He works with our strategies and plans. He works with them and he works through them to bring about his purposes and his desires. All of us in this room have experienced this. Whether you think you've experienced it or not, after all, this is God's creation that we stand on. So whether you think Jesus and God is ordering your life or not, you'll be surprised when you find out that everything we do is, in fact, ordered by him. Nothing happens that he does not know about. So, how does this leave us with God's people being taken into exile because of their disobedience? Because it seems like such a dramatic step to us. Okay, God's people... God's loving them, God's looking after them, God's bringing them into provision, God's bringing them into a land. And now I'm taking you that land off you, and I'm putting you in the hands of your enemies. It, it feels like a dramatic step, doesn't it, when we read it? In the cold light of day, who is this God that just goes, I'm having that, thank you very much, I'm taking it from you, and there's no love, there's no grace, it doesn't feel like there's anything like that in there. But let's remind ourselves about why the people ended up there, okay? Because this is really important. The people were persistent in their idolatry, okay? They weren't happy with just having God. No, 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 we want to worship idols. We want different things to worship. We want to make sure that we crossed, dotted the I's and crossed the T's and we've made sure that if anything happens to us, we've got ourselves covered by whatever God we want to look at. Persistent idolatry, worshipping anything other than God who was loving them. What else did they do? Consistent disobedience. 
No, we're not going to do what you're asking us to do, God. We're going to do our own things. And the judges, man did what he felt was good in his own eyes. Constant rejection goes hand in hand with that. If you're going to do your own things, then you're going to reject the one who is asking you to be faithful. Which leads to unrelenting unfaithfulness. They were never faithful to God. They kept pushing him aside. No, we want a king to rule over us, not you. And we're going to ignore what the prophets are saying to us. Unrelenting unfaithfulness. And you know what that led to? They were unable to act with justice. And God hates injustice. When you become a Christian, you suddenly realize that actually when things are not going right and you see somebody suffering when they shouldn't be, you want to fight for them. Or I do. My heart is just, that's the way it's wired. I see somebody having injustice done to them and I want to fight for them. I know Jamie's like that and I know a lot of people in this room are like that. They see injustice and go, no, that is not right. Let's do something. Sometimes it's not our job to do it and we can run into it trying to get things right, but... Generally, it's our heart because that's God's heart. You see, all of the Israelites, they were, and I'll, I'll make this point now, like us, and we are still unrighteous. See, I can only claim, and you can only claim, righteousness through Jesus who gives you his righteousness. Never, ever consider that being a Christian suddenly makes you righteous. Jesus' righteousness is given to you. It covers you. When you read in Scripture, and we, we did a, a catalyst on this way back, what does it mean to be clothed in Jesus? What does it mean to take on Jesus? And it's this Jesus kind of clothing us. Remember, remember Garden of Eden? What did they do? They covered themselves with fig leaves, didn't they? And what did God do when he expelled them from the garden? He gave them better coverings. Better coverings. It's a signal that he was going to do something later that would better cover us. When Judah was taken into captivity by this guy called Nebuchadnezzar, I'm sure you've heard of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, God didn't just stop speaking to them just because he'd taken them into exile. He didn't abandon them. Far from it. He issued specific instructions in order that they would be preserved. After all, God is a God of covenant promise, as we've learned and understood. And when God makes a promise, what does he do? Keeps it. He doesn't break it. What do we do? We break it all the time. That's what the big picture tells us. Man breaks covenant with God and God goes, I'm still going to love you. So he keeps speaking to them. And we have three particular prophets that God uses to speak to um, Israel, and Judah, Israel and Judah whilst they're in exile. And that is Ezekiel, Daniel, and a guy called Jeremiah, who you may have heard of. Now, Jeremiah spans actually from before the exile and then goes into the exile with them. So he's already speaking to five kings before they get taken into captivity. So he crosses over into captivity with them. And before Judah and the destruction of Solomon's temple, he is speaking to five kings going, whoa, stop, do this, do what God is telling you. Woe to you if you don't. 
I think if we're honest, today we have a lifestyle of instant results, don't we? We like things instantly. We have fast food, for example. I'm hungry. Fast food. McDonald's and other outlets are available. Let's go and, let's go and grab something. And then we don't even want to get out of our cars, do we? So McDonald's goes and other outlets go, we'll do a drive through for you. You can just pull your car up, order at one desk, and then you pay at the next one. And then we'll just shove you, throw your food in through the window, and off you go, and you have your food. You don't even have to stop. And then, like you discovered, there's just eat. You just phone them up, you do it on your phone, and they send it to you. You don't even have to leave your house. We want everything instantly. Life is moving so fast that we rarely get the opportunity to ask, where is it actually heading? Where is all this going? We want everything now, including, I think, our spiritual fix. We want to be instantaneously changed and instantaneously get it all right. It seems we're not prepared to wait for anything. And yet God is totally patient with us. He ultimately shows patience with us. Wherever we are, wherever anybody in this room is, God is still being patient with you. Still pouring out his love and he's still pouring out his grace upon you. He's still waiting for the time when it all clicks in your heart. But as we've said time and time and time again, we've still got this body to contend with. So we're still only living in a small image of what is to come. And our view of the big picture of the Old Testament has shown us that we are not the only generation that's impatient. We're not the only generation that decides our way of doing things is the best. As Israel careered through the time of the judges, forsaking God for their own ways and ideologies, they requested kings and had some respite when good kings came along, but it wasn't enough to stop them plummeting out of control again. The kingdom divides into two, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, and the prophets increase their warning. Remember the beep, 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 getting faster, more incessant, get your seatbelt on, strap yourselves in, something's coming. Warning the people of impending judgment and punishment, and like us, I guess, when nothing seems to happen, anyone had a parent that says, if you do that again, I'm going to do this, 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 and then they don't do it. It's the worst thing you can do, I'll tell you now as a parent. Worst thing you can do. Because that's what happens when people go, oh, I can get away with stuff and I don't ever get punished. So I'll just keep doing it. God is very patient with us, but he's also a God of justice. And he hates injustice. And when his people and their actions create injustice, he acts. Because he has to act in justice. So his people are taken into exile. And they were in for a bit of a shock. The years of disobedience and sin were now going to be called into account. Jeremiah 11 verse 14 tells us that God says to Jeremiah, pray no more for these people. Do not weep or pray for them. I will not listen to them when they cry out to me in distress. Oh my goodness, that is a big statement to write over your people. It seems really harsh, doesn't it? But the case, in this case, the God, through Jeremiah, he puts this 
puts for the disobedience and abandonment, or the case that God puts through Jeremiah for this reason it's happening, is much stronger. God who declares that he does not treat us as we deserve will still show mercy, as we will see. You see, the book of Jeremiah reads like a court case against Judah. It's pretty damning. The first 29 chapters are a bang, bang, bang. I'm going to show you what he did and you've got no answer for it. It's like a court case where there is no answer whatsoever. They construct the case against Israel with the nation's behavior held up against the requirements of the law, which is stated in Deuteronomy. Here is what you should have done and here is what you actually did. You see, God has given covenant promises to his people. Observe my laws and I will protect you, I'll provide for you, I'll position you in society. All you have to do is keep my laws. Sounds fairly simple, doesn't it? Fairly straightforward. But the Israelites, like us, just couldn't help themselves. And instead of even trying, they rebelled against God. They rebelled against the law. And they shattered this covenant relationship that they had with God. Shattered it, rendering the promises, position, and protection as rejected. We don't want it. So God says, okay, I'm going to take you in a place where you will absolutely need it. And they were all eventually taken into captivity. Israel by the Assyrians, and then later Judah by the all-conquering Babylonians. And when this covenant was shattered, God ceased to listen to the people. But in this context, what this means is that it was time for justice to prevail. It was time for justice to be served. Not that I'm closing my ears to the cries of my people, but I'm crying out because I'm actually not going to listen because the time has come for justice to be meted out. And it was his people that deserved punishment, just like we deserve punishment. Now, do you ever feel that God has abandoned you? Is there any time in your own life where you think, you know what, God is just not near me? My own life has taught me, and we have to be brutally honest again here, that the lowest ebbs of my life have been when I have distanced myself from God, not God distancing himself from me. God has never abandoned me. I can stand here in front of you and tell you, God has never abandoned me. He's never left me without hope. He has always waited for me, and he's always caught me. God, my Bible tells me, is a God of restoration, of love, grace, and mercy. And he just showers us with it. He pours it out upon us. Whether we respond to that or not is totally up to us. And even in captivity, God continued to speak and use his people. He gave specific instructions that we should see as being actually countercultural to the culture that they were in. But these are the instructions that God gives to his people whilst they are in captivity. Okay? So he's not forgotten them. He's not abandoned them. He says, right, do this. This is how you get through this. I have to act in justice, but this is how you get through it. And in fact, I'm going to try and use you to, to influence the people that you're in captivity with. So he says this in Jeremiah 29, verses 5 to 7. This is what you've got to do. Go and build homes and plan to stay. 
plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. There's a bit of a long-term plan going on here. Marry and have children. In fact, find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. This ain't going to be a quick fix, is it? It's not going to be an in and out. Multiply. Do not dwindle away. And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for the place that you're in, for its welfare will determine your welfare. I think there's something we can take from that for today when we live in Stockport, when we live in this place. Pray for Stockport. Because the welfare of Stockport determines our welfare. In other words, God was saying to them, settle down, prosper in the land I've placed you. Work hard. Don't struggle in your captivity. Thrive in it. Once again, the opportunity is shown to show all those around that I am God and I look after and I preserve, I love my people. And standing over all of this is God's promise to his people. Jeremiah 29, verse 11. Something that you will all know as soon as I say 29, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. It's important that we keep these words in context, as they are some of the most quoted in church life. That's why I know that you'll know that verse. They comfort us and they define our vision when we're struggling. Time after time we bring this verse out. And yet they're a startling promise of hope to a stubborn and disobedient people. Showing God's justice, okay, he had to act in justice, so captivity for your disobedience, but also hope for the future and because of covenant promise, a saviour. As part of God's plan for restoration, his people will once again be able to come to him, to pray to him, and be confident that God will listen and act. But it's going to go a whole lot further than that. Now, how do I trust in this promise? Well, a 10-year-old has experienced 3,650 sunrises. A 30-year-old has experienced 10,950 sunrises. Right, if you're brave enough and you're over 50, raise your hand. How confident are you that the sun's going to rise tomorrow? See, the point is, we get to learn what God's doing and God's beauty. Lamentations 3, verses 22 to 23, also written by Jeremiah. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh. When? Every and each morning. I experience, and you experience, I hope, God's faithfulness and mercy every day. Even if you don't know Jesus right now, you're still experiencing his mercy. You're still here. You wake up. You've got another opportunity to hear God's good news for you. 
And we should see something else here. God is very, very consistent. He isn't varying or changing. He is constantly faithful to his promises, even though we are not. Even to the point of declaring a new covenant in Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 31. So even if they're in exile, even if they've been shoved away to their enemies, God speaks and he gives this beautiful, beautiful promise of a new covenant in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31. I'm going to look at it bit by bit. Starting at verse 31. It says, Behold, this is God speaking to his people in captivity. Behold, the days are coming which means there is a time coming. There is a time in the future coming. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, have we got our ears open? Are we, are we kind of reading those words and thinking, hang on a second, what's, what's going on here? But isn't Israel gone and Judah gone? when Jeremiah is reading these words, writing these words. Haven't the ten tribes, haven't they gone and been lost forever? There's going to be a new covenant, which is what we remember when we take communion together. But the promise of Israel and Judah being united once again in black and white. So if you were around in 1948, you saw this come true. You saw Israel become a country once again, a nation. And Jeremiah prophesied it. He told you it was going to happen way before time. Now, unless Jeremiah's book was written after 1948, anyone believe that, then the Bible's true. Somebody was asked, why is it that you think that God is real. And they said, Israel. Israel stands far and above everything else. When you look at it, those promises have come true. So verse 32, let's carry on with this. So this is not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was their husband declares the Lord. You see how important covenant is for God. God keeps his side of covenant promise like a faithful husband. And to make this point even more, he takes a prophet called Hosea and he tells Hosea to go and marry a prostitute. I want you to experience and know what it feels like for me when my people just keep being unfaithful and I constantly remain faithful. She'd go off and she'd follow her profession and she would be unfaithful so that he would know how God felt in the covenant relationship. Read Hosea. Have a read of it. See how this all fits together for you. Verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
no longer is this reliance on paper to tell us what to do and the law to tell us what to do. Something is going to happen to us internally. Now, this is really important. Under the new covenant, we will have the ability to obey because of the continual presence of the Holy Spirit with us. We're in a very, very different place. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin. When we know we've done something wrong, we have that conviction and we have that desire to put it right. It brings us to this word repentance. Verse 34, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. All who know me, declares the Lord. And Jesus died once and for all. There is nothing else left to accomplish after Jesus' death and resurrection complete the work of God to bring a solution to all of mankind's sin and rejection. We can be forgiven of sin, and more than that, actually the words say that our sins are forgotten. If you know the psalm, forgotten as far as the east is from the And we've discovered that east and west, if you start going around the world east, you never ever find west. You just keep going east. Or if you go west, you you just keep going west. But if you went north to south, you'd eventually meet the north and south poles, and then you would... So God knows what he's doing when he writes his scripture. You see, there's no record of our wrongdoing when we ask for God's forgiveness. All is wiped clean. And how do I know this amazing promise stands for us today? How do I know that this promise is for us as well as just the Israelites, his people? Romans 5 verse 6 says that when we were utterly helpless, when we could do nothing else in our lives, Christ came at the right time and died for us sinners. Paul tells the Roman believers that the God of the Old Testament remains consistent, constant and faithful today and that Jesus is the culmination of this. Now, thanks, Jamie. I wanted to give you some form of graphic to help you kind of get your head around what is happening in the big picture. The Old Testament shows that God does not leave us in despair. He does not reject us even when we reject him. He does not cease looking for us when we try to hide. He reaches down and he rescues all who turn to him. Everyone who turns to him. His plan is for a new covenant brought about by Jesus. He rescues us in our despair. And from that point, God's plan is to restore to all people relationship with him. We start with a tree, a tree of life in the Garden of Eden. Everything is good. All people that God made were in perfect relationship with him until sin entered in. And from that point onwards, we began this degeneration. We began this slide in sin and obscurity further and further and further away from what God intended. So God interjected. 
And he sent Jesus to die for us because we could not do anything about our sinful state. And Jesus died, uh, lived a life without any sin. So he was born without sin and he lived a life without sin. Who else had no sin when they were first created? Way back here. Adam. Adam had no sin when he was created. He was in perfect relationship with God until he took his chance to go, I'm going to go my own way. And sin entered into mankind. Jesus lived a life without sin to prove to Adam that it was possible. And why is that important? Because Jesus had to die a perfect sacrifice in order for us to be covered by his life. To present to Adam the fact that Jesus could do it as a man so that we could have salvation through it. And then what happens when Jesus has died, he takes 12 disciples and he takes this raggedy band and he says, right, okay, the Holy Spirit's going to come in power and then you're going to speak to Jerusalem and you're going to speak to Judea. And, and it starts to fan back out. More and more people getting saved. More and more people coming back into a kingdom where it's come down and down and down and down to the cross. Now it's expanding ever outwards. And in Revelation, we get the tree back. We get the tree of life restored to us. Eternity, no death, no dying, no sin, no punishment because it's all been meted out on God's own son, Jesus. Israel and Judah in captivity, but they were never forgotten and they were never abandoned. We also are in captivity to sin. But Jesus has freed us by his life, his death, his resurrection. And he brings us all back into fellowship again with God. And that, friends, is the big picture. In the Old Testament and in the New, and here is our future hope that God brings us into eternity through Jesus' Son. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and at www.coachhousechurch.org.